You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Georgetown. For more information about Redeemer Georgetown, connect with us on social media or check us out at www.redeemergeorgetown.com. Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. My name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. And I want to welcome you to this first Advent sermon for our congregation. You know, this week as I was getting ready, I heard or read an article where Warren Buffett, financier, has said that Tesla stock, he believes, is going to go to $10,000 a stock. $10,000 a stock. You can buy it right now for $183 a stock. I can see Zach and Bob saying stop, whatever you're about saying, stop that. Um, gosh, I, you know, honestly, I hope he's right. I hope Warren Buffett is right. I invested in Tesla stock about four years ago, and uh, man, I hope that he's right, because if he's right, I'm going to fare well out of this deal. But if I knew that he was right, what would I do? What if my hope was placed in absolute confidence and conviction, this guy is right. What would I do? What would you do on Monday, tomorrow, if you knew that you could buy a stock at $183 a share, and it was going to, in the next couple of years, go up to $10,000 a share, here's what I'm sure you would do. You would sell whatever you had to sell and buy as much of it as you could because it is a good investment. You would have confidence that what you had to sacrifice now was well worth it because of what was coming. Well, friends, I want to invite you into Advent. The word Advent means the, means the arrival of an honorable person. So the first Advent 2,000 years ago was the arrival of our King Jesus. And Advent is an invitation to trust in His promises. They're not like the hopes of this world. They're not like a hope of Tesla stock going up. This is different. This is confidence in the promises of God, the promise of the return of Messiah, but it's also promise of a person who is with us, promise of Emmanuel. And so today what I want to do is I want to invite you to hope again in the promise and the person of Jesus. Maybe you've done that years ago. You come to faith in Jesus. You trusted him for salvation. You've learned through the years that he's faithful. But you're afraid of something that is coming your way. Something that is out there in the future. Something that makes you nervous. I want to invite you to trust him again and again. That his promises are true. That his presence is here with us. And that because of those promises, we can have hope. Hope that is certain. That is secure. Now Michael mentioned a couple of weeks ago that one of our favorite verses before preaching. It's Luke 24, 45. It says, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. It's a prayer that I'm going to ask God to give you illumination that he would speak to your hearts this morning, that you would hear his voice this morning. So I invite you to pray with me now. Let's ask God for that unique opportunity to be clutter-free in your mind, to be able to hear and to receive the truth of his word for where you are today, for what is going on in your heart, but also that I could do this weird, wonderful job of proclaiming what is true. Let's pray. 
And Father, we thank you. We thank you for the chance to gather and to sing songs that are true, to confess together our need for you. It's an ongoing need. It's a, it's a longing that we have that grows in us as days go by. I thank you, God, that you see us, you understand us, you're attentive to us, you are actively shepherding us. And Lord, we thank you for your presence here this morning. Every one of us struggles with something, Father. Something from our past, something that looms in our future. God, I pray that you speak to us to have hope in you and in nothing else. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you a little bit of a roadmap this morning of where we're going. Just you kind of set your mind towards the uh, next 40 minutes of time together. What I hope to do is show you that there was a garden paradise, Genesis 1 and 2. And we're going to talk about what that paradise was, according to Scripture. And then we're going to see in Genesis 1, uh, 3, verses 1 through 7, the paradise was lost. And it's a tragic wrecking. It's a tragic, grievous thing to read those verses, knowing what God had intended, what God had planned, and to see it all fall apart in the first seven verses of chapter 3 of Genesis. And then the rest of the chapter 3 shows us the promise and the hope of Emmanuel. And we're going to see that together. And it's really important that you understand that you will never really truly cherish Christmas unless you see what was lost. Unless you see the great void and the great tragedy of what was lost. And so, in Genesis chapter 1, what you'll see is a chronological telling of the creation. Day 1, day 2, on down through day 7. And over and over, God saying five times after creating, it is good. God looking at his creation and declaring, this is good. But then when he created male and female, in his image, he created them. And for his glory, he created them. He didn't just say it was good. He said it is very good. Listen to these words from Genesis chapter 1. It says, Therefore, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, let them have dominion over the earth and the sea, or the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, over the earth and every... Uh, I am struggling with uh, seeing this a little bit. I'll see if I can find it on the screen, much easier. Ah, there we go. To every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and so it was. And God saw that everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, and this was the sixth day. And so as you see that chronological telling of creation, you see God pronouncing that this is good and creating man on the earth and giving him this opportunity to be there. But Genesis chapter 2 is uniquely different. It is a thematic telling of the creation. It's a glorious telling of how God did it, but also at the center of it, there is a location and there is a relationship that is beautiful, that is glorious. And so as we look at that, you will find that there is so much here for us to just enjoy 
that God has given in this story. It says that there is, and I want you to watch for this, and I want you to see this, that in Genesis chapter 1, God has defined male and female, that he gets the power and the right to do that as creator God. That he defines what it means to be male, to be female. And then he gives them dominion over the earth. He commissions them. He blesses them, commands them to be fruitful and to multiply. But in Genesis chapter 2, we see how he is still at work in the midst of his creation. Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. Listen to these words as we find them together. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. This is a, a great picture of something very different from what happened in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, you see a creation that is en masse. God creating the creatures of the sea. God creating the beasts of the field. But when he comes to create man in his image, it's a picture of something very intimate. God kneeling down in the dirt, as it were, scooping together the dirt, forming a man. This is a very intimate, beautiful picture of God's care for the crown of his creation, Adam. It is something that God intended us to see, that this is unlike what he had done before. Now some of you are thinking, isn't that kind of just mythology, right? Like it's just a good story? You really believe that God scooped together and breathed life? Absolutely, I believe that 110%. I think this is exactly how God created the first man. And everybody in this room actually believes that once any of us go into the ground and stay there long enough, we go right back to dust. Right? So that is part of what we hold as a church, is a, the authority of Scripture showing how God did this, this intimate, beautiful creation of man. And so at work in the midst of the mud and dirt God is creating, and he does something wonderful. It says that he created a garden. He made this garden and he placed man in it. Genesis chapter 2 Let's read down verses 15 through 24. Listen to this. It says, The Lord God took the man, and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree, of, of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to all the birds of heaven, to every beast of the field, but for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman 
and brought her to the man. Then the man said, at last, uh, this at, at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore the man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, for they shall become one flesh. This is the beauty of what God had created in this garden paradise. There are several things that are there for us that I want you to see that made it a paradise. One is this. It's home. It's home. God is the one who created the garden. Just a hunch, I imagine it was stunning. I imagine that it was absolutely the most wonderful, beautiful place that our minds could not even stretch to try to understand what he had created in this garden paradise. But it was God's garden, he knew what he was doing, and he takes the man and he plants him right in the middle of that garden and says, this is yours. You ever been on a vacation that when you walked into the room or into the place, you had this thought, I am never, ever leaving? <laughs> we were uh, in Colorado, uh, Vail, Colorado, the first Acts 29 retreat, and there we were, and I hadn't been to Colorado much in my life, that was one of the first times I've been there to actually stay, and we were with all the Acts 29 pastors from around the world, really, at that time there weren't that many of us, uh, and we walked into our room, and it was just absolutely this beautiful little lodge-like place, walked to the back of the room, opened up the sliding glass door, and there was a river running behind it. And we heard a couple beside us just gooing and cooing and laughing and praising God for what they were going to get to do was stay there for about three days. And I was sitting there and I look over and it's uh, a guy named Bruce Wesley. He's a pastor in um, Houston, a big Acts 29 church there. We stood across the rail and just talked to him and his wife for a few minutes and just thought, ah, I can't believe it. And I thought, they're going to have a hard time getting me out of this place. And I don't know if you've ever been to Saranac Lake in July upstate New York, near Lake Placid. But when we were there last summer, we drove in at night, so you couldn't see all that was going on. But the next morning, we woke up, and we looked out the windows, and there's this beautiful, pristine lake, the mountains around it, and it's just perfect. And my wife just started crying. She starts crying, and we sat down on the deck and drank coffee that morning for, for a couple of hours, and I had that feeling, if this is this stunning and this amazing, and I can treasure it so much. What was the Garden of Eden like? God planted that garden. God made it perfect. Whatever the sights were of the trees and the flowers, whatever the sounds of running water somewhere in that garden, the smells that were there, it was the kind of place where they would have thought, I'm never, ever, ever going to leave here. And the glory of it was that it was God's gift to them. He said, this is yours. I put you here. And the best part of that garden, which we're about to see, is that God walked with them in the coolness of the day. This was a garden that God shared with them. So he gave them a home. But you'll notice also that he gave Adam a job. He gave Adam a job. It was Adam's job to tend to the garden. And then eventually to name the animals. And so before there is a fall of mankind, before there's sin in the world, there is the dignity of work. 
that God had given Adam a task. Tend the garden, name the animals. This is a glorious thing to have purpose in life, to know why you are there. God has assigned a task for you. And it's a glorious thing to work hard at something that God has called you to work hard at. There's joy in that. Long before there's sin, there is work. There is dignity in that. And so Adam has that. But you'll notice that Adam is given this longing, this sense as he's naming animals. That there's Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe. That he could see that. Or he could see a little bitty ant and say, oh, that's a little bitty guy. That's an ant. And then another animal comes by and eats and he goes, that's an ant eater. It's brilliant. You know, and he's naming them. But what he looks and he sees is, there's not one like me. I want one to share with. Even though I have God, I also want a companion in his world. He felt a growing sense of longing in his soul. And that's when God puts him to sleep, takes a part of him out, a rib, and forms a woman. And then he gives her away in marriage to Adam. So part of what made it paradise, God made it. There was dignity and purpose there. It was family. Namely, marriage. One man, one woman, committed to each other for life. God gave marriage. God defined marriage. It is His institution. And there is no redefining it no matter what. No matter what else you try to do, God's the one that gave marriage. God defines marriage. And He does it right here in the Scripture. And why does He do it? Because the man and the woman are both made in his image. And in the two of them becoming one, God uses them like living mirrors that they would reflect his glory together. There's intimacy in that. There's oneness in that. There's joy in that. And God gave them as a gift in the garden. But I think the other thing that when you look at this that is really just beautiful is that God not only gave them a home and God not only gave them purpose and God gave them marriage, but he also gave them himself. That he walked with them in the cool of the day and they worshiped him and he had commanded them not to eat from any other, or not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That they could eat from any tree they wanted in all of the garden. So they had everything they needed. Provided by God generously. And they could worship him by either obeying that or disobeying that. They could refuse to worship. But they had a oneness with each other and a oneness with God. That we'll never even know until we get to heaven. We have sense of it. We have breeze of it. But we don't know it like they knew it then. God had given himself. And if they would follow in this. They could live there, and they could multiply it, they could have dominion, they could enjoy each other, they could have no clothes, not in any way ashamed or afraid. If you think about that, you ever seen a two-year-old dance when the music really hits them? And, and you realize, this is, this is kind of glorious. This kid doesn't even know to be ashamed right now. They had not choreographed anything, they're just choreographing it as they go. Right? And it's kind of fun to see that. And it's a sad thing when you see your kid finally get conscious of that, that people are actually watching and laughing not with them, but at them. 
And then they stop doing that, and you kind of want to go, ah, you lost something there that I wish you had not lost. Because it's a beautiful thing to see someone free of judgment, free of a sense of fear. You know, listen, this idea that they could stand with no hidden, nothing hidden, nothing to be afraid of, no sense that they need to be armored in any way from each other or from their environment. I can't even begin to imagine what that was like. I would imagine that if you could see them interacting, watch them, and listen to them talk to each other, it would be really jarring to see how courteous, how sacrificial, how loving, how gracious they really were towards each other. And then we know what happens in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. You know, in, in, in this passage that is kind of famous for us, there's every part of you that kind of wants to scream, no, 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 don't, don't. I see what's coming, don't. The serpent comes into the garden, apparently walks in. It actually reads in the Hebrew, the shiny upright one. That's what he was before he was cursed. And here's what he does, and I want you to take note of this. He says, has God really said that you can't eat from any of these trees? Oh no, we, we can eat from all of them except for that one. Uh, uh, that one, huh? You're restricted. So let's not think about all the kindness and generosity of God. Let's think about the one thing that he has restricted from you for your good. And see, this is what he does. He takes attention away from all of the kindness of God and points to the thing that you can't have, that is barrier away from you, that is kept from you. And he points to that and says, this is what you must have. Can we not eat from any of these? No, we can eat from all of these, but not this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day that we eat from it, we will surely die. And here again is how Satan works in this moment, and he's used the same strategy over and over again. He's probably using it in your life now to not look at all the kindness of God, but to look at the thing you don't have that you want and put all your attention on that. That's what he's done here. And now he says, but you shall surely not die. He contradicts the word of God. He says, you can sin and get away with it. You're going to be able to sin and have no consequences. God was lying to you. You're not going to die. He knows that the day you eat from that, your eyes will be open, and you will know good and evil. Now see, this is the trick. Some of that is absolutely right. Their eyes would come open. They would know something they didn't know before. And because of that, because of that hint of suggestion, that thing that says, hey, if I had this, maybe I'd be free. Maybe I'd be better. Maybe God isn't good. Maybe God isn't kind. And everything in us wants to go, no, you have it all. You've been blessed so much. You live in a garden paradise created by God. You have innocence. You have freedom. You have harmony. You have everything you need. And there they are, deciding that Maybe God isn't that good. Maybe God is holding out on me. He is the accuser of the brethren. Satan accuses us to God, and he accuses God to us. 
God's not that good. And if God were that good, then why would I struggle and have these difficulties? If I could only have what that person has, maybe my life would be okay. Well, if we keep watching this, and we see that they take from the fruit uh, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they eat husband and wife, and then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. This is the first time in their lives that they have to look down and realize, I'm not safe. I've got to do something. Notice this. This is where paradise is lost. When you stop believing in the promise of God, when you take for yourself something God has said no, when you decide that God is not being good and God is not being kind, and so you'll provide for yourself, and they lose it all. Right there. I just want to ask you to think about the fact that we never lived in a paradise like that. We can feel shame because we were born into this deal. We were sinners from the very beginning. They weren't. What they lost that day, when they first felt shame, when they first felt like hiding, must have been such a terrible stab of grief that you and I could not understand because they had innocence. We've never had that. They had a home it would be better than your greatest dream of a home where they felt belonging, where they felt safe. And then they lost that. See, this is the hope that God is calling you back into is that the promise is actually true. And though paradise was lost, there is a promise of paradise to come and it's not just heaven someday. It is the message and person of Jesus inviting us back into the wholeness that is ours because of Him. There's a song that my daughter Hope and I just love. It's by Andrew Peterson. I don't know if you guys know Andrew. Andrew, you should know him. He'll, he'll bless you. He'll encourage you. But he has a song that's called Don't You Want to Thank Someone? It's a long song, but it's such a glorious song. But one of the lines that always brings a lump into my throat and my oldest daughter's throat is this. He says, when uh, the children of the king are ancient in their youth again, the day that we're made whole again, he said, maybe it's a better thing to be more than merely innocent, but to be broken and redeemed by love. This is the great thing that God has called us into Paradise was lost. Something greater than that will be ours in Christ. And that promise will be ours now, and it will lead us all the way home into the paradise of heaven someday. And the great promise is not just streets of gold and not just uh, all the living water and all that. It's Jesus himself. Listen to what happens as God comes calling and says that God looked for them, that the Lord came for them, and they heard the sound of God walking in the garden. What did they do? Even though they had fig leaves on. And, and I don't know if you've ever felt a fig leaf. It is really scratchy. Like it, I went to Israel, oh, I don't know, a couple years ago. And I, someone said, well, that's a fig tree. And I was like, okay, let me see the fig leaves. I'm going to see the leaves. You know, one, they're not that big. 
size of a hand. So you had to take several of them. You had to find in their creative ingenuity a way to stitch them together. And then I thought, my gosh, this was not comfortable at all. <laughs> what a lousy way to cover yourself. And they heard the sound of God walking in the garden. And this, this time, this was not like before where they would run up to him and say, I'm so glad you're here. I can't wait to tell you all that I've learned, all that I've seen and shared with you and listened to you. They didn't do that this time. This time they hid themselves among the trees of the garden. And what does our missionary God do? Well, one, he comes. Two, he asks them this question, where are you? And this is not a question of knowledge seeking. God knows exactly where they are. He wasn't looking for the answer, we're behind the big maple tree. You know, he, he knew where they were at. The question is, did they know where they were at? This was an invitation to repent and to confess and to come back. Well, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked. What do you mean naked? You had leaves on. Yeah, as much as I tried to cover myself, I still felt uncovered. Can I pause just for a moment and ask you to consider that we still have the same problem? We try to cover ourselves up. We try, if you've got a sin pattern in your life, you don't want us to know about it. You cover that thing with, well, the things you think you're doing well. The things that you're good at. And you don't let people know if you're struggling with some kind of addiction with some kind of uh, struggle in your marriage, with your parenting, with your finances, with a hundred things. Maybe you feel embarrassed a little bit about your accomplishments in life. And so what you do is whenever you're around people that are highly accomplished, you start reading your resume about things you are good at. You're just covering up. We all do it. We all try to look impressive. We all try to spread our peacock feathers to impress people. It's just another way of putting on a fig leaf and saying, look at how good I am. I'm covered. I'm covered in this stuff that makes me feel good about me. Well, they still feel naked and so do we. Like no matter what I do to cover up, I still feel exposed. Right? God asked them, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? He knows exactly what's going on and he comes for them anyways. He comes for them. God is a missionary God who continues to seek sinners. Yeah. God keeps coming yeah. because they are the object of his affection. You, I, we are the object of his affection. He knows about the sin. He knows about the things you're trying to hide and cover up. He knows about that, and he loves us, yeah. and he still pursues us. And so as he comes, he calls out the sin, and he puts strife, enmity, fighting between the serpent and between the woman and the offspring of, and that just is a picture of the outgoing flesh of one generation and the spiritual growth of another generation, and they will always be at odds. They will always have strife and fighting. But then we see this beautiful picture in Genesis 3.15, the very first mention of our Savior, Emmanuel, Jesus. It says that he will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, 
and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So there's a collision coming between the offspring of these two. And in that collision, the serpent's head will be crushed. A fractured skull, a flattened skull. All of his works will come to an end when they collide. It will be such a violent collision that the heel of this one who has come will be bruised. This is a picture of the crucifixion. Now, I want you to notice, we're in chapter 3 of Genesis. It's not as if God just says, well, good luck with that. I'm done with you. He sends a missionary verse, a missionary statement, right into the heart of this. Now, what does that tell us about him? It tells us that though death would have its way, though the relationship would be fractured because of sin, our missionary God already provided means by which our foreparents could be saved, means by which we could be saved. If you know that, then you can endure the darkest nights. If you know that you can have hope in spite of your sin, that you can still be right with God through Jesus Christ, then you can live on this broken earth with your broken heart, your broken perspective, and you can make it through because you have what? You have hope in a promise, in a person. His name is Jesus. What was lost in the garden? Innocence was lost. Safety was lost. Provision was lost. Harmony was lost. Life was lost. Because knowing God without sin was life itself. And as they sinned, it was all blown to pieces. And it says that they were driven out of the garden. Driven like cattle away from their home. I don't know. I, I try to imagine for myself what would it feel like to have been in that spot, that garden paradise, and told, you can never come back here ever again. And the sense of loss, the sense of injury to our hearts, what that would feel like. I'm sure it was ten times worse for them, a hundred times worse for them, because they knew what was really there. We can only imagine. They knew what was lost. So they lost it all. But there is something wonderful that is coming. In Isaiah chapter 7, we see the beautiful promise. And I want you to know that this promise that happens first in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that one will come someday. If you look at the Old Testament, it's a little bit like a lens that is being twisted and it's coming into full focus. In Isaiah chapter 7, in verse 14, it starts to speak about this. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel. We sang about it this morning. God with us. The one who's coming is God with us. You know, there, there's a picture in the New Testament when... Because we don't always feel like he's with us, right? Like he's somewhere. He's in heaven. He's dwelling in my heart. But is he, is he in this room with us right now? Just as much as you are, as much as I am? Is he here? 
And a picture of Thomas after the crucifixion and Jesus has been raised. And he says, I'm not going to believe that you guys actually saw him until I put my hands in the nail prints and in the scar on his side. Until I do that, I'm not going to believe what you're saying. And then about a week later, Jesus shows up again and says, here, Thomas, put your hands here and here. And though Jesus was invisible in the first interaction, he was there. He heard Thomas's words. And sometimes when I'm singing worship songs and my mind is ablaze with all kinds of things like sound and slides and greeting and all of that, it gets lost on me that Jesus is physically really here in that sense that he is with us as much as you are with us in this room and that he sees and hears and understands every thought, every fear, every hope that I have. He is God with us, even though I can't see him. And because of that, I have hope. I can trust him. And it's not the kind of hope where you're crossing your fingers and thinking, man, I hope this goes up. I hope this works. I hope that this stock rises for me. It's not like that. It's the absolute confidence that his promise is true. He's Emmanuel. He's with us. He'll never leave us all the way to the end. So what is the thing that we need to learn to do? Realize you're not alone. You never face a hard conversation by yourself. You never face an ultimate loneliness of any situation you're in. He is with you. He is for you. The prayer I pray over my kids before they get out of my car or they leave the house. God, show them, Father, that you are with them in every hallway and every classroom. You know how to do geometry. Whatever. Spanish, right? You're the God who is with us. You're the God when I find myself outmatched by any situation. I can call on you and say, the promise is still true today. I don't live in the garden paradise. That was lost. But I still have you here with me in every situation. And because of that, I can have hope. You know, when I went to get Sarah many, many years ago, she was in Ghana. She had been dropped off at an orphanage. And I went to get her uh, because the embassy called and said, hey, you got an appointment next Thursday or whatever. Eight, nine days away. So we called the lady that's keeping her and said, hey, I'm coming. And you're coming home. And uh, this is after I don't know how many trips before that. And I get there. And it was uh, supposed to go like clockwork, you know? It's supposed to just be that easy. So I get there, meet with the embassy. They say, hey, there's a problem. We need to do some more investigation. I'm like, huh? I mean, we already have airline tickets to go home. Like, well, we still have to do the investigation. And in the middle of that, there's this thing called sequestration that happened in the government where... The two parties were fighting with each other, and they weren't going to fund certain things. And so every single, I mean, they went to skeleton staff at the embassy. They went to skeleton staff in the senator's offices back home. So we're stuck. We're stuck. And so 
I'm sitting there with my beautiful six-year-old girl just saying, hey, uh, we're going to have to be patient here. They're working on it. And so I was there with my oldest daughter, Hope, and as we waited, she just had to fly home by herself. I think Hope was maybe 14 at the time. What exactly my favorite thing to send a 14-year-old on an international flight through Amsterdam? I'm like, you know, my brain started cooking there. Like, oh gosh, this is going to go terrible. Amsterdam's not the greatest place in the world in my mind for a 14-year-old by themselves. But she made it home, and I'm sitting there with Sarah, and I'm like waiting, waiting, waiting for the phone to ring from the embassy because I want to get on the flight that I've now bumped so that I can go home with my daughter. Finally get the call saying, we're not going to be ready. It's not going to happen. So it could be another 20 days. It could be another 60 days. We just don't know. And I remember just feeling crushed as I sat with my daughter on my lap at that time and said, honey, I don't know what to tell you. I'm going to have to get on a flight and go home. <laughs> and here's what I want you to know. I'm coming for you. I don't care if it takes 20 days or 60 days. I promise you, I'm coming. I won't give up till I get you home. And there she sat in a puddle of tears, and me trying to act tough and brave for both of us, but it wasn't working. And I'm sitting there crying, and I just had to get on that flight and go home. Listen, about three days after I got home, they called and said, we're all done! <laughs> I'm like, ah! Okay, well, Monica ended up getting on the flight and going to get her and bringing her home. I want you to know this. Jesus is coming. He's coming. He's promised. And he is, before his second advent, before he comes, he is here with us. He is God in human flesh, but he is here with us in spirit now. He is as much a part of this gathering this morning as any of us are. And he has said, I promise you, I'm coming. I've paid the way for you to come home with me through my blood. And I promise you, I'll never leave you until I bring you all the way home, back to myself, back to the kingdom of God, back to the home that was prepared for you. What did John the Baptist say in John chapter 1? He said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who does what? He takes away the sin of the world. Think about this. Why was the paradise lost? It was lost because of sin. What separated Adam and Eve from God? It was sin. Jesus says, I will come, I will take your sin, and I will carry it away with me, and it will be no more. And I will bring you back to my Father. And something greater than Eden is waiting for you. It's an eternal paradise that you can never lose. That's what Jesus told the thief on the cross. Today you'll be with me in what? Paradise. Two Greek words. Para and dikos. A wall around. It's the picture of this place where you are forever safe. Forever at home. Forever in harmony with God. Because of what Jesus has done for you. That's what awaits us. We have the promise of Messiah waiting for us every day when we wake up. 
And that's why every Sunday we eat, we drink, and we remember. And so I want you to hear this. I want you to put your hope in his person and his message, his promise, and know that he is with you. So let's pray. And let's ask God to affirm for us both his message and his person that we would eat, drink, and remember the goodness of our Savior. Pray with me.